Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? Hi, Grant. I'm very well. I've, you know, I'm still smiling, even if we are in lockdown. <laughs> yes, but aside from that, Kim, can you tell us uh, about the topic and the guest today? It's uh, sounding like it's going to be pretty amazing. Yeah. So today we're talking about the future of food. Now, I know that sounds quite nebulous, doesn't it? It's a sort of just a bit. yes that we're just going to go. Oh, you know, in somehow looking back in the fifties when they thought we were all going to be eating food off polystyrene trays, you know, for the rest of our lives. Anyway. <laughs> But we're going to really ground it. We're going to be joined today by food futurist Tony Hunter. He's going to make it very tangible. So Tony's a global futurist, but he specialises in food and beverage and agriculture. His scientific background and 30 plus years in the industry frame his views of where the world of the food that we grow and manufacture and eat is headed. And while he's a highly experienced speaker, which is where I first met Tony when he was speaking at the Naturally Good Expo back in 2019, a whole different world, uh, he also has his own consulting business and he works with companies using his trademark Future Cubed method that helps companies understand and prepare for technological changes that are going to impact their business. It is a fascinating space and I'm thrilled to be speaking with him one-on-one today. Hi, Tony. Hi, Kim. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. And uh, look, you talk about food being exponential. What does that mean? Well, I think, Kim, I've been in the food industry quite a long time, many decades, and I've never seen anything like the rate of change that we're seeing now and the application of technology to food. So basically what I'm saying is that food is now technology. We're being impacted by all sorts of things from genetics to the microbiome. We've got cell-based meats. We've got all sorts of things coming in, which means that food really now is technology. And if you think of technology, think of our, our mobile phones, our supercomputers in our pockets, think of how that has changed exponentially over the years. In other words, it is not just linear. And, and I think a really good example of the, the exponential growth is basically think of what we're all talking about, COVID. If you think that you're going to get one infection, two infections, three, four, five, when you really get one, two, four, eight, 16, you're out by a factor of three. If you go to the next iteration, which is six versus 32, you're out by a factor of five. So that exponential growth. So because food is technology and technology grows exponentially, we come up with the term exponential as the future of food. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really true, isn't it? I, I hear over and over that food tech is the new tech, you know, the, whatever whatever other, you know, techs that there are, agri-tech and food tech are just where it is at. And so, tell me, what are some of those, what's some of those technologies? Well, as you say, the thing is, 
I spend a couple of hours a day literally going through all the things that are happening. And when I speak to executives in the food industry, how do you keep up? It's basically, um, I don't. I'm worried about <laughs> next quarter, the half year, the yearly results, what's going on. And it's easy as an executive to get trapped in that linear thinking rather than the exponential side of things. And there are so many different technologies. I mean, just to name just, um, just a few that are going on. I mean, we won't spend too much time on plant-based, I think, because that's really, everybody's familiar with that. There are still a few interesting things going on. But of course, the other one that we're hearing about now is a cell-based where you take some samples from an animal, like a small biopsy, or I think Eat Just, another company got it from the end of a chicken feather, and you grow those cells in great big stainless steel fermenters. So basically, you grow meat. And that's another one that's coming on hard and fast at the moment. But if you really want to get into more of the cell-based ones, how about you can grow mammary cells in these big fermenter, um, stainless steel fermenters, and you can grow the milk from any species, including human. So you can grow human milk. And there's four companies around at the moment that are doing that. You've got Biomilk in the US, Turtle Tree Labs up in Singapore, another company called Harmony Foods, and 108 Labs. And those four, just to pick those four out, they're all working on different aspects of growing human milk. Because when you think about it, and I said this at a, at a, a conference the other day, I said, when you think about it, Drinking milk is a bizarre thing to do. We <laughs> yeah. take the milk of another species meant for its young. We say, no, you can't have it. We're going to drink it ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm just saying it is a bizarre thing to do. And the infant formula people, they're always trying to make dairy-based formulas as close to human milk as possible. But what if they can just buy human milk and make infant formula? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, think about uh, all the all the infrastructure and, and the investment around something like a lactoferrin plant, whereas, you know, the, the future in that space is actually going to be cell-grown or cell-cultured like milk, like human milk. Yep. Yep. You're right. And I mean, the Turtle Tree Labs, one of their first targets is lactoferrin. So we're going to, and they're, they're working with some of the big dairy companies in the world because like meat companies are rebranding themselves as protein companies and have been for a while, dairy companies are seeing the future and they're doing the same thing. They're going, we're here to supply a milk-like product that people want to put in their coffee and cereal and use. My view is nobody actually wants cow's milk. Cow's milk is what we currently use. But no one sat down one day and said, I know, we'll have this coffee, this cereal. I want a thing. I, that's, I'll, get, 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 me, get me some cows. It was like, this is what we've, what we've grown accustomed to. And there is no <laughs> particular reason that it has to come from a cow. We need something to put in coffee that tastes good, something to put in a cereal that tastes good, that works in recipes and making food and so on. But we don't need cow's milk and dairy companies are realising like meat companies or protein companies, not quite sure what they're going to call themselves. Are they going to call themselves milk companies, milk non-dairy, milk dairy and non-dairy? I, I really don't know what they're going to come <laughs> well, up with. That, we could do a whole episode just on, you know, like what are we going to call these things? And uh, we know that in Australia at the moment there's there's um, a level of contention about who calls what what with a, a federal Senate, uh, uh, no, a federal House of Reps inquiry into whether uh, alternative proteins can use terms that are 
have been historically used for animal proteins. Um, so, yes, that's going to be a very interesting issue. But I think you touch on something there that I don't think you framed it in a way that's not being utilised in this notion of we want something on our cereal or in our coffee that does what cows, you know, that we've used cow's milk to do. So, it, it's not actually some sort of um, moral or decision. It's actually a much more cerebral sort of concept of, well, we just want something in the coffee that's going to cut the bitterness or that's just going to give it a nicer, creamier mouthfeel when I drink it. I like that mindset. Um, but when we're looking at these this space as well, and look, we have talked a lot about plant proteins and I find it fascinating that cell-cultured meat, even from discussions two years ago where people were really turning up their nose to now where, you know, they're, they're launching on the stock markets and we're talking millions and millions of dollars in these companies. And I'm only just getting my head around fermentation as this notion of a third pillar of alternative proteins. Um, everyone needs to pick up our next, our July issue, uh, 2021 it will be, if you're listening to this later uh, um, down the track, where we talk about, uh, we talk with the company and Nourish Foods and the work they're doing in that fermentation space, creating oil that you can use in plant proteins. But there are companies now that are making food from air or out of wood. Yep. Yep, that's right. I mean, the, uh, people say, you know, you pick up that one on the wood. Um, oh, human beings can't um, metabolise cellulose, so anything with cellulose in it is no good. Well, no, that's not actually true. There's a company called Arbiome, and what they do is they take the waste and the leftovers from the lumber industry. When you think about it, you've got that nice big straight pine tree. What happens to all the branches? Where do they go? When we turn that circular tree into rectangular lumber, where does all the sawdust and the bits go? A lot of them get burned, so not good for GHG emissions. And what our biome can do is they can take all that waste and they can use a process to turn that into usable sugars for growing yeast and other microorganisms. So they can literally make food from wood. And because they're not actually growing trees for the purpose of making food, they're using the byproducts, and there's a lot of byproducts to the lumber industry, then they're actually contributing to the circular economy in turning the entire amount of the tree growth into usable products, whether it be lumber or whether it be food. So I think that's a really interesting one. As you say, the food from air, there's a few companies doing that, Air Protein and one called Solar Foods. Solar Foods are out of Finland. And what they do is basically use um, solar energy to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. They add some CO2 and other minerals, and they can basically grow protein. And their water efficiency is about 10 times better than soy protein per kilo of protein. And because you can do it using solar energy and low water, you don't get caught with what I call the twin tyrannies of food production, which is arable land and fresh water. If a country that has both of those has food security. A country that doesn't have one or both of those doesn't have food security or has very, very low levels of food security. So you can stick one of these things in the middle of a desert with no rain virtually 
because you want solar energy. So, hey, this is a great place for solar energy and you can use minimal amounts of fresh water and you can grow protein. And that protein can actually then be used to grow cell-based meat as a media. So you don't actually need any plants to grow the media for the cell-based product. So you can set up an entirely new food system based on these new technologies that don't require a vast majority of the inputs that we take for granted in how we make our products. There is nothing magical about where we get our protein from, from animals and from plants. Nothing magical. That's just the way it's been. That's what's developed culturally and through other influences on agriculture. That's what we've done. There's nothing to say that we can't do it from these solar foods method, from air, that we can't use huge algal ponds. Algae, best place to grow algal ponds is where you've got very low rainfall, lots of sun, close to the sea. Now, I can think of a lot of places in the world, including northern parts of Australia, that, that fits really, really well. And one day we, have to, we wanted to expand our version of a farmer to include people that grow algae. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit more about algae? Because it's something that, you know, every now, it, every now and then I sort of, it makes my ears prick up because I hear more about it. I mean, there's there's two, basically you get into two areas. One is what they call the macroalgae, so the algae and the kelp you see on your beach and so on, and extracting and turning those into products is a company called the Dutch Weed Company, which actually the weed actually meaning the kelp and the algae, not the weed they might be selling in the shops elsewhere in you know, Amsterdam somewhere. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, they use a lot of seaweed in their, in their product. And then you've got people using microalgae, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of species of algae and microalgae around the world. And um, the, you can manipulate those algae to either make ingredient products or make protein out of them. So there's lots and lots of different ways you can utilize algae, and they call it the algal bioeconomy. And because it can biologically produce a whole heap of different products, everything from bioactive compounds to food products. So there's a huge amount of things you can do with algae. I feel like we need to have a pause and a lie down, Grant. Like. <laughs> We've just only just started. <laughs> I know, right? We're not even I'm scratching the like, surface, Kim. Oh, I'm like, I was just scratching 15 minutes in, and I'm just like, I'm trying to, I'm still just trying to get my. But do you know what I think about this? Which no one's tuning in to hear what I think about it, but <laughs> it's this whole, apart from the technology shift and the advancements and the remarkable things that they're doing. It's the disconnect from that to then the average consumer and their understanding of where those technologies are at. So, the people that have been working in these spaces have probably been doing so for decades, if not maybe even longer. And so, to them, this is all great. They're finally reaching a point where there's the chance to scale and, you know, but for the vast majority of consumers, this is suddenly being put in front of them. And I think we just don't really know what to do with it, what to think about it. It's a monumental consumer mind shift as well as the technological advancements. And I think the thing is, why that's so is because all of these technological advances in the past, people didn't get to hear about them. There were no podcasts to tell people these things were happening. There were no no internet to go look it up. There was no social media saying, have you seen this, that, or the other. A company did something. It generally flew under the radar unless it was a product that needed 
some sort of approval from the government and it was a big deal and it was controversial like GMOs, of course, but don't get me started on that um, and all that sort of thing. But now that's all out in the open. But people don't realise how many products are been made by technology over the years. And the one I love to use is, I usually ask them, who likes cheese? I get a lot of hands in the air liking cheese. I say, okay, did you realize that you've been eating a product made using the product of a genetically modified organism for the last 30 years? Because rennet, which is the key, uh, the enzyme from two-day-old dead calves, their fourth stomach, put in milk, um, that's what makes cheese. Now, that wasn't going to fly. There wasn't as cheese is growing. People don't like the idea of uh, killing these little animals. So Pfizer, our friends who are doing the vaccine, they came up with chymosin. So they took the gene for chymosin from cattle, and that's the primary enzyme in rennet, put it into a microorganism, and they grow the chymosin. That chymosin is then purified. There's theoretically no DNA from the organism in there. And that is then used to make hard cheeses. So if you've eaten hard cheeses, they estimate in the UK and the US, 90% of hard cheeses are made using fermentation-produced chymosin from synthetic biology. And and the other one is, think about it, in insulin. Insulin, it's not made from train loads of pig pancreases. It's the product of a genetically modified organism back in the 1980s, Genentech and Eli Lilly. So people have been injecting the product of a genetically modified organism into their bodies for nearly 40 years. And this is what I find fascinating. I mean, I say, okay, if I say to someone they've got a disease, I've taken crushed walnut shells, I've sent them into space, I've exposed them to cosmic radiation, I've brought them back, I fed them to a monkey. It's come out the other end. We've purified it. And if I inject you with this purified material, you will be cured. I reckon 99.9% are going to say, this is my arm. Inject me. And then if I say, but also, would you like to sprinkle it on your cereal because it's really good for your health generally? It's, you must be joking. It came through a monkey. I'm not going to sprinkle that on my, on, on my cereal. I mean... Yeah, like it, we have a totally different view on technology used for medicine and technology used for food. We'll happily inject things into our bodies without asking. I don't, I don't know the details. It's going to cure me. I'll take it. Eat the same thing for your health? Oh, I'm not sure about eating it versus injecting. Oh, I'm not really sure about that. Let, 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 let me get back to you in maybe five or ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's um, there, Kim. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, if we take a step back again to the proteins that are being made from air and solar and from wood, they're called mycoproteins. Is that right? Uh, no, they're what would you really call they're made using biomass. So biomass is just growing lots of microorganisms together and making biomass. Now, mycoprotein, you're right, that's a really interesting one because that's really coming to the fore in the last six months in particular, 12 months, been a massive increase in mycoprotein companies. That's basically something made from a fungus. So if you look at the plant-based generally, corn, one of the biggest um, non-animal meat products around has been made using mycoprotein fermentation for a long, long time. Um, but now we're seeing a lot of companies 
getting into that mycoprotein side of things. And a really interesting one is a company called Nature's Find, F-Y-N-D. They found in the 2016, at the bottom of the fumaroles, the hot springs in Yellowstone National Park, they found something growing there, a fungus that can grow at the bottom of the hot springs. So it's really, really efficient, right? I mean, it's, it's under really extreme conditions and extremophile, as they call it. So it's got to be really, really good at growing and using nutrients. So they've cultured that. And they're now using that to make alternative protein products, everything from cream cheese to breakfast patties in the US. They'll be coming to market in 2022. They've already done proof of concept products. So that's mycoprotein. Uh, another company called Enough, uh, they produce mycoprotein as an ingredient for alternative protein. They're not plant-based anymore, but for a company called um, Unilever, one of the huge food companies in the world, they have the vegetarian butcher. Mycoprotein goes into the vegetarian butcher products. And oh, look, there's, there's all sorts of people. There's a company called Atlast, A-T-L-A-S-T, just raised $40 million to make bacon from mycoprotein from growing. They grow the bacon in sheets and with the fat and the whole lot, it looks like bacon and it cooks up like bacon. And you've got the Better Meat Co. at the other end in the States. They produce a product called Riza, R-H-I-Z-A, which is used an ingredient so that you can reduce the meat content of a product and still keep all the flavor profile and texture in the product. So we've got people from ingredients through to finished products Aquaculture, a company called Aquacultured Foods, are doing seafood from uh, mycoprotein. It's really starting to break out. There's a lot of companies around now, and um, so it's been around for a long time, that fermentation technology. It's one of the branches of fermentation, that third pillar that we talk about in the, in the alternative protein space, and growing this mycoprotein, and they grow really, really fast. I mean, you know, you, you can grow a cow in a few days, you know, without any problems at all. So, you know, so, you know this stuff grows. I mean, it really, when it grows, it grows. So, you know, you, no waiting 12 or 18 months for your cow will just, will just grow you one in the next few days, come back and we'll give you a cow-shaped bit of mycoprotein or something and you can go process it. So, you know, that's another branch that re- I say I've really noticed take off a lot in the last six to 12 months. As these technologies do start to be able to scale and they're starting to actually be able to come to market, what I keep hearing is that the two big challenges are taste parity. So, you get consumers buying the products but not perhaps coming back. They're still doing that real experimental, they'll just work their way through the different brands. Or, but so, that, so, there's that issue. But then there's also the price parity as well. So, what's your take on that in terms of will parity eventually like eventuate or is it, are they always going to be in sort of completely different camps? That's, that's really interesting because particularly a lot of people in, um, in the conventional meat industry look at the less than 1% of the market that plant-based meat takes up. And they think that shows that it's irrelevant. No, 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 they're very careful because it goes back to our exponential conversation before. Whereas at 1% of the market, at two to three times the cost of animal protein, they're still selling billions of dollars worth of this product. So when you go from 1% to 2%, you do a doubling, you will drop 15% on average off your cost of production. That's called the experience curve, well established across all sorts of industries. Then you go to 4%. There's another 15% off the top. Then you go to 8% and then you go to 16 And 16 
when you look at the value percentage of alternative milks, it's about 12, 13, 14, 15%, depending where you are in the world. So all of a sudden, you've cut nearly 40 to 50% off the price of your protein because of volume alone. Now add in technological advancements and adding that people are now growing soy protein with high protein content and low oil content, the exact opposite of what they used to do, because they want this specifically to be used to make plant-based products. So you've got a cheaper source of soy, you've got volumes going up, people are buying it at this price, they will buy a lot more of it at half the price. And what we're also seeing there, that address, I suppose, the, the cost parity, my best estimate for what it's worth 2023 into 23 will 24 we'll see price parity with across most of the plant-based products in the ground the ground area I, I don't think there's any problems with that you look at who's behind it nestle unilever tyson jbs jbs just paid about 500 million oz for a company called vivera the third largest plant-based company in europe so it's going game bus and they're driving hard so they're going to drive that forward so i, I see price parity is is it's absolutely it's it's inevitable and the interesting one is do you think it's going to stop at parity so what when it's 20 percent cheaper than the the standard product then what and with taste i mean uh, when I was at a conference back in the heady days of 2019 on a panel there in, in <laughs> Melbourne, um, I, 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 someone said, you know. Only, it was a simpler time, it Tony. It was a simple time. <laughs> <sighs> but anyway, when we down there and, and I made the comment, I said, you know, only about one in five people in Australia have tasted plant-based products. And, and I'm actually very, very glad of that because most of them are rubbish and, and you know, what people won't come back. The best, my opinion, and I, Talked to someone in a huge ingredients company in the US just the other week. Said, "What do you think is the best plant-based product globally?" And they they have their own product. And he said, "The Impossible Burger." And I, I agree with him. We don't see much of the Impossible Burger in Australia. But if you can get your hands on an Impossible Burger, go try that. That's benchmark. And I said, "What's it out of ten? He said, six. I might have given it closer to a seven. So even the best product. But see, that's good news because Impossible can sell all they can make at a six out of ten. So imagine." the headspace to go to seven, eight, nine, ten. And who says that the taste of a conventional meat hamburger is the ultimate taste? Why set such a low bar, people say? Let's go for 11 or a 12. There's no reason you can't make a plant-based product taste better than a conventional burger. So like our price parity, why stick there? Why not go below? And taste parity, why stop there? Why don't we just keep on going? And we see huge companies driving this, again, exponential growth in flavor parity and exponential drops in price parity. You've got companies like Givadan and IFF, two of the biggest flavor houses in the world, out there pushing the plant-based product improvement cycle. And every time you get a big company come in, you get a step change in resources coming into the industry. So, you know, I think Nestle have something like um, 10% of all their food scientists in the world concentrate on plant-based products. So imagine the horsepower behind that that didn't exist five years ago. And then you've got Mars coming in. You've got Unilever coming in. You've got JBS bringing resources. They didn't buy Vivera to stand still. They brought Vivera to drive sales up. And if that happens to cannibalize their products and Cargill's CEO, said the other week, we see plant-based products being 10% of the market and it will cannibalize some of our meat products. That's from the chairman of, of, uh, of Cargill. So 
It's it's coming. It's not if. It's just when and how fast. Wow, it's really just remarkable what is happening uh, in this space and. The world of food is so much more complicated and complex than I think any of us imagined and yet so full of excitement and promise and um, opportunity. Uh, I think we should put a line under it today. Tony, it's just we'll have to have you back on. There is so much more to talk about. We haven't even touched on things like the role of genetics and the microbiome or and the personalization of food. But Uh, This seems like a great spot to stop today. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been remarkable. Thanks for having me on the show, Kim. And and I've been around the food industry for quite a long time, and I can tell you, this is the most exciting time to be in the food industry I have seen in 30-odd years. So happy to come back again and see if we can do more than just scratch the surface of some of the things that are going on. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Kim. And of course, thanks, folks, for joining us for this episode. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another very informative episode, just like this one, but perhaps not quite as uh, in-depth and quite as wow. That was (laughs) I've, I've been listening to this and just wow. But anyhow, until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of food and drink business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.